maybe it was to a special attraction you wanted to go to, and on the road trip, there would be signs that would then tell you how far away you are from it, and you'd watch for those signs. So you could kind of count down in your little head how far away you are, and all the while, the excitement was happening because of what those signs represented. You knew they were just a sign, but they represented something greater. See, Jesus, as he ministered, he ministered with signs and with wonders. But he wanted his disciples not just to get so focused on the signs that they miss it. He wanted to teach them how to see beyond the signs, to have belief and to behold Jesus, the Savior. We're going to talk today about these signs and how really through these signs, Jesus was communicating something his disciples should have seen by looking beyond the signs. And so I want you to go to Mark chapter 7, verse 31 and following. I know we saw it dramatized for us, uh, but I want us to hear the text again, and then we're going to just kind of unpack it a little bit and bring up one point from each of these sections that applies to our life. Because I love God's word, but we need to get some handles so we know how to do this as well. So it says in Mark 7, 31, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. And after he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. And people were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If you want to follow along with today's message, I encourage you to do that using the Bible app. Many of you have that already on your devices, and we have our notes kind of embedded there. If you go to events, you'll see Neighborhood Church, and our notes are there as well as the text. You can go online as well. But I want us to take a look at this, because oftentimes we read Scripture, but we don't really get what's going on behind it. So we're going to take some time here just to kind of talk about what's going on. So we see in the beginning of this, it's tying to the previous story. So last week, Pastor Rob preached about that woman from Syria, Phoenicia, whose daughter was demon-possessed. And we saw him ministering outside of the cultural norms for the Jewish people. See, most Jews pretty much stayed right around Jerusalem and in that region around the Sea of Galilee because that was kind of their turf. They didn't go to the Samaritans very often. In fact, most Jews went around Samaria not to walk through it. Not many went up north into Tyre and Sidon because these were cities where the pagans lived, where Gentiles, they were called, lived, who were non-Jewish people. And what I love about Jesus is he was not afraid. In fact, he was willing to minister outside the cultural boundaries. And there's a big takeaway there for us, friends. Isn't it so easy for us just to stay with people who are like us? And especially when we come to church and we like our small groups, we like our life groups, we like our Christian friends, but how many know we're already knowing the truth about Jesus for the most part? 
There are people outside of our boundaries that need to hear about it. And Jesus was continuing to push that good news out. And so he goes from where he administered to that woman in Tyre and begins to sweep across the northern region of the Sea of Galilee and comes across to the eastern side where he ministers in the region of the Decapolis, uh, which is uh, called Ten Cities is what it basically is. And again, this is pagan territory. Uh, Not a lot of Jews there. And Jesus ministers there to a man who comes to him who is deaf and mute. It says he had a hard time speaking, which tells us that maybe this man at one point in time actually could hear and could speak. But due to some form of illness, he lost his hearing, and because of that, his ability to speak as well. And it could have been the disease also plagued some of his, um, his mouth, his tongue, and so it was hard for him to form words and to communicate. And so this man is brought to Jesus. So even in a pagan culture, people know who this is. And they may know who he is because last time we saw Jesus in the region of Decapolis, remember the event? There was a demon-possessed man. His name, he said, my name was Legion because he was full of many demons. And Jesus casts out those demons into the pigs that were nearby. And all those pigs ran into the sea and drowned. Uh, sure, word spread about this Jesus guy. So as he's back in the region, some friends of this man bring him to Jesus. That Jesus might lay hands on him and touch him and heal him. And what I love about Jesus is that he takes this man and then he pulls him aside. Why? Because I don't think Jesus was interested in having some kind of a circus sideshow as some kind of wonder maker. He wanted to minister to individual people. He was never going to use somebody for his purposes. Rather, he wanted to minister to that individual. So he takes this man aside from the crowd to minister one-on-one to him. That's what I love about Jesus. Yes, there were always crowds, but in his stories, there was always the one that he was trying to connect with. Maybe that one this morning is you. He's trying to connect with you. But he takes this man aside, lays his hands. Now, this is pretty weird sounding, right? He puts his fingers in the man's ears. Now, I don't know about you. I don't put my fingers in other people's ears. There's just something that says that's not okay to do. Uh, You never know what's inside those ears, right? If you want to know what's inside those ears, look at your earbuds from your headphones, all right? Uh, So he puts his fingers in this man's ear, kind of plugs it, and then he does something really weird. He spits. I mean, just visual. I mean, do we ever see a spitting Jesus? I mean, this is hard for us to wrap our heads around. But Jesus spits and touches the man's tongue with the spit. So what's going on? Fingers in the ear, spitting and touching the man's tongue. This is like crossing all kinds of hygiene boundaries. What is he doing? And why is he doing this? Well, we have to understand something. Jesus, remember, was ministering to the one. He pulled him aside and was ministering to him. And the reason many scholars believe that Jesus did these very demonstrative activities, fingers in the ear, spit and touch the tongue, was to communicate what he was going to do for this demon-possessed man. Or not, sorry, this, this deaf and, and, uh, and mute man. So he's acting out what he's going to do. Now, by the way, sidebar, there was a cultural belief that spit had some healing qualities. Maybe that's why mom always did, you know. You know, how many of you had that happen before? It's like, now I smell like mom spit. But, you know, they did, they, they did that. 
Maybe because moms thought there was something healing in that. I don't, I don't know. But there, there was a thought in the day that spit had some healing value, but I don't think that's why Jesus did that. I think he was demonstrating what he was about to do for this man. And then it says he sighed deeply. I think Jesus is always concerned about the bigger issues. What's going on? Sin has corrupted humankind. Sin has brought illness and disease and evil. And he deeps, deep sighs. But it's also, I think, a form of focus on his father and the power that comes through Jesus to minister. And he says these words. And, the, and, and Mark is very careful to tell the Roman audience what this means. Because what, what we have, this ephetha, is Aramaic, which is what language Jesus spoke, all right? The Roman audience that Mark was writing to wouldn't know what those words meant, so he takes some time to define it. Why didn't he just say, be opened? I mean, why didn't he just use that to begin with? I think because Mark was always wanting to make people aware that this was the culture in which Jesus ministered. And so this was the word he spoke. But he was careful to define it so that that word wouldn't become a magic formula. I mean, how many of you, come on, be honest, how many of you have ever uttered a magic phrase hoping to make something happen? Maybe you were a kid and you waved your little wand over something and you said something to make this magic thing happen. So Mark's very careful to say, this is what it means. Don't go think you can use this word now with people to make magic things happen. That's not the point. He says, be opened. And that man was healed instantly. And this is interesting because the man could all of a sudden talk clearly, freely. He could hear. This man was touched immediately and completely by Jesus. And then he gives this man who he just loosened his tongue and opened a command not to tell anyone. I mean, come on. I mean, it's like if I was a guy who just all of a sudden now could hear and talk, and then Jesus says, oh, you can't tell anybody. That just seems like, what? That doesn't make any sense. He would often tell people that, especially in pagan cultures like this, because Jesus didn't want crowds coming to him for the wrong reasons. See, we kind of have this approach sometimes in our religious faith that we bring our felt needs to God, and he better fix it. And we're always, at times, coming to him for the wrong reasons. And Jesus didn't want to raise a crowd of people who would come to him just to have their physical needs met when they had a deeper need, which was the, the condition of their souls. To trust in who he is as Messiah, Savior, not just some sideshow in, in pagan countries doing magical things. But the crowd responds with amazement. And it says that he has done everything well. I think this is probably the Jews in the crowd who use this because it's interesting how this ties to the creation account. If you go back to Genesis where God creates, at the end of each creation cycle of the day, it says something. He did all this and he saw that it was good. This idea of Jesus coming and opening the deaf ears and loosening this man's tongue, and they're going, he does everything well. There's this link to this divine creation of God. Not only that, but they say these words. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You know what they're referring to? Not just what happened, but some of these were referring to a prophecy that came through Isaiah. And it said this in Isaiah 35, 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is a, a word about the coming Messiah who would come. And Jesus did all of these things. 
Now, not so much the gushing forth in the desert of, of water. He talked to the woman at the well and said what was going to happen. Springs of living water would flow from where? Within her. Speaking of life. But he did heal the lame and he opened the deaf ears and he opened the blind eyes. He did all these things, a fulfillment of things that only the Messiah who would come from God would do. But it was more than that. It was also a demonstration of his absolute divinity because Jesus did things that only God could do. In fact, in Exodus 4, we have this interchange between Moses and God. Remember, he's in the wilderness and this bush begins to light fire all by itself. He goes to see what's going on. God speaks to him and calls him to do what? To go to Egypt, set the Israelites free. Moses is like, but I'm a man of stammering lips. In other words, I have a speech problem. And God speaks these words, and this is an indication of who God is and, again, who Jesus is. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, when Jesus is opening ears and loosening tongues, it is a demonstration that he is God. So he heals this deaf man, opens his mouth. And I think that sequence is interesting. Opens his ears and he speaks. I think there's something there for the disciples that they're going to need to learn from that. That there needs to be a sense of understanding and an awareness of who Jesus is and then a freedom to speak that. But how many of us also need to hear that word? Because many of us, we've been serving Jesus a long time. We know and have heard a lot about Jesus, but we are tongue-tied. We don't talk about our faith with anybody. This was never meant to be, friends. The more we know who Jesus is, the more we should want to talk about what he's done in our life. And we need this miracle personally. We have had our ears open. Maybe some of you are like, well, I, I still don't know a lot about God. Well, you know enough to tell what he did in your life. Start there. Let him loosen your tongue. In fact, here's kind of the idea. We're going to wrap around this opening passage for us today as it was for the disciples that day as well. May God open my ears to his truth and loose my tongue to speak his good news freely. May this be our prayer that, Lord, you've done all things well, and we love who you are, and we can read about you in Scripture, and we can know who you are. May our ears be open to that truth, but then may it not stop there. May we speak freely. And that man, as soon as he could speak, what was he doing? He was talking about what Jesus did for him. And yet we have this idea that Christians should be seen and not heard, that my testimony how I live should be enough. Well, we hope it is, but it doesn't hurt to use words. It goes on in Mark chapter 8, as we go to the next chapter, verse 1, that during those days, so the same time he was ministering to this man who was deaf and mute, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place? Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Does this sound familiar to anybody else right now? Didn't we have a passage like this just a little bit ago? Interesting. Remote place, same word used, enough to eat, same words used. But Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a, a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. 
The people ate and were satisfied. And afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Interesting here. So Mark collects both multitude feeding events. We already saw one a few weeks back. You missed that message, go back. Uh, I think it was called a vision for provision. Go back and listen to that message. That was the feeding of the 5,000. These are not the same event that Mark just happens to remember twice. These are two separate feeding events. And the reason we know that is because Jesus mentions that later, but also we know that to be true because of this. These, while they were similar in nature, they were also different. The feeding of the 5,000 was primarily in a Jewish area of Galilee, and now he's in a complete Gentile pagan area. Uh, we also know that they had similar ingredients, right? Both had bread, fish, different numbers of that equation. Both times, big crowd, Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat, and they do what? We don't have enough. This remote place, not enough food. If I was Peter or whoever went to Jesus and said this, wouldn't I be kind of thinking, boy, these words sound really familiar coming out of my mouth. Seems like I have said this before. But again, the words come. We don't have enough. You look at this and go, what is going on? Because the story goes on, they distribute, Jesus blesses, distributes, leftovers, more than enough for a crowd of 4,000, which by the way, again, they number just the men. Sorry, ladies, nothing against you, but culture, that's what they did. They numbered the men, so that means in a crowd of 4,000, there could have been what, eight, 12,000, maybe 16,000 people there. We don't know the exact number, but we know it was a multitude. And there's always enough, and there's leftovers, and they go and collect the leftovers. I mean, shouldn't some of this have been like somewhere banging around in Peter's head. I mean, think about it for a minute. How could they totally forget this? Were they, were they kind of like Dory in you know, Nemo? They just had short-term memory loss. They just couldn't remember that this just happened? I think before we give the disciples a hard time, we need to look right here and say, how many times in the past has Jesus been faithful and he's done something in our lives. And then something new happens. We go, oh, my goodness. Oh, and we begin to fret and panic and worry about it when we should be talking to ourselves, saying, hang on, Kelly. This may seem a little bit different, but you know what? Last time, this is what Jesus did. He is faithful. Let's trust him. We don't know why exactly disciples do that, but they seem to have forgotten about what Jesus had done. And they, again, look to their lack. They don't have enough. And here's our idea, again, to unpack. I don't, we don't want to spend a lot of time here because it's very similar to what we talked about with the feeding of the multitudes previously. But here it is. The little that I have to offer Christ becomes more than enough when it's placed into his hands and then used for his purposes. So here's how this comes home for us today. Maybe there's an opportunity to give, and you hear a missionary speak, or you hear about uh, something that happens in our community that you really feel like you need to get behind, but you look in your checkbook and go, well, I just don't know. There's not enough there. But you feel God put in your heart to give something. So we're at that point where our faith is going to be stretched. And maybe you look back over your life and go, man, there were times that God provided for me. I think he might do it again. 
There are times that somebody might come to you and say, hey, you know what, Vacation Bible School's coming up, and we need some people to lead small groups, and you're thinking, well, I can't do that. What are we focusing on? What little we have. And instead, maybe we ought to stop and go, I've got more than enough. Because I believe that stepping into this is something that would honor God and be in line with his purposes. So I'll place what little I think I have into his hands and let him do the rest. This is what our viewpoint should be as Christians, that every time we're going to be asked either from God or others to do in line with his mission, we're always going to feel like we don't have enough. But you know what? What we have placed in his hand is more than enough when it's in line with his purpose. The disciples didn't get that. They missed it. It's like maybe they thought, well, Jesus only has like one of these big miracles in him, and that's all. He can only do like one feeding. So next time it happens, I'm not sure what he's going to do, and so we're going to play the same thing. No, they should have remembered. We should remember that he always does more than enough. So it moves on from there. It says that he got in the boat after that multitude feeding, and his disciples go to the region of Dalmanutha. This is actually the hometown of Mary Magdalene. It's also called Magdala. This is where Mary Magdalene, who was a follower of Jesus, had lived. And they, they land on the shore, and they're greeted with Pharisees. Let's look at it. Mark 8, 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So we've seen in Mark several times, Jesus is ministering, and there's always these little followers called the Pharisees. Now, they're not really followers of Jesus. They're naysayers of Jesus. They, they have doubted anything that he has done. In fact, the things they have seen should have convinced them, but they think it's the power of evil or blind luck or who knows what, that this guy is not who he says he is. And so He's coming to the shore, they see Jesus coming, and they, they hurry to the shore, and they begin to confront him, and they ask him for a sign. And Mark clarifies why, to test Jesus. When was the last time Jesus was tested that way? It was actually in the wilderness before his public ministry. Mark doesn't record it, but Matthew does and Luke does, where Jesus has this temptation from Satan in the wilderness. And every temptation was a temptation for Jesus to use his authority and power for selfish gain, right? There was, hey, you're hungry, here are some stones, turn those stones into bread, feed yourself. Hey, you think you're God's son? Well, here, prove it. Go up on top of this high place, throw yourself down, he'll certainly command his angels to, to, to watch over you and you won't strike a foot to the ground. Look around, Jesus, to all this stuff, all this fame and all this wealth. It'll all be yours if you'll just bow down to me. See, now we have not Satan, but the Pharisees testing Jesus and basically saying, prove who you are to us. Leverage your power for a selfish point. Now, to them, what would their sign be? You know, we see Jesus' response. What's he do? He sighs. It's like what happens when your husband does something that totally just appalls you, right? <sighs> you ever sighed like that? When the kids do something? <sighs> I could just see Jesus, right? We've seen him spit already. Why not see him sigh? It's like, <sighs> If there were emojis back in the day, you would have seen Jesus post a whole bunch of emojis that all look like eye roll and sighing. Why? 
He's like, oh, my goodness, what's it going to take to prove to you guys who I am? Haven't you seen? In fact, they saw with their own eyes a healing of a man on the Sabbath who had a lame hand. They saw him set demoniacs free. They heard about and probably saw him feed multitudes of people with next to nothing. Yet they're asking for a sign. If I was Jesus, I would have given him a sign. I know you'd be tempted to as well, right? Like in the Bible, there's a sign that comes from God called fire from heaven. Yeah, let's do that sign. That would be a good one right about now. The only problem is there would be no witnesses left to talk about what happened. So it's not that. What are they asking for? If he was truly God, then he would do something cosmic. That he would make the sun maybe stand still because God did that in the days of Joshua. Or if he was really God, maybe he could do something with the constellations because certainly only God could do that. Or more specifically, as most scholars believe, what the Jews wanted for a sign was what God did in the Old Testament to deliver the people from their captors. See, at this time, the Jewish people were living, yes, within some frame of of freedom, but they were under Roman rule. And they hated it. They chafed under being under Roman rule. And so what they would love is for this Messiah, because if he really was this Messiah, he would be the one who would destroy the enemies of the Jewish people. So prove to us you're that Messiah. Because in the Old Testament, God had no problem with thousands of people who were the enemies of Israel, turning on themselves, killing themselves, and dying. If you're God, bring us freedom. What they didn't know was he came to bring them freedom. It was very different than they anticipated. They looked for these signs And he was not going to do it. In fact, Matthew's gospel talks about the same event, but he says, it says in his account that no sign would be given them except the sign of Jonah. Now, what's the sign of Jonah? You guys remember in Sunday school, Jonah, right? You'd make these little crafts. There'd be like a whale, and you'd put like Jonah inside the whale, and he would sit in there, and then you'd take him out or make the the fish puke him out, whatever the thing might be. What is the sign of Jonah? Jonah was in the belly of the well, according to that account, for three days. What Jesus was speaking to was him going into the belly of the earth, the grave, for three days and rising again. He was speaking to his resurrection. That was going to be the sign. In fact, the resurrection was the most spectacular sign of all. Only God could resurrect from the dead. And so he proved who he was. They still didn't believe him, even upon his death and resurrection. Why? This was an unbelieving generation of Pharisees. In fact, we see, remember that story, when he does rise from the dead, there's this guy named Thomas, right? One of the followers of Jesus doesn't believe it until he can what? Put his hands in his side and touch his wounds. And Jesus says this to him in John 20, 29. He says, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Friends, that's us. If you're sitting here today as a believer of Jesus, listen to these words. Jesus says you're blessed because you believe even though you haven't seen him. You believe. I remember as a kid, riding my bike down Knollwood Drive where I grew up and my parents still live there in North Albany. It's a beautiful sunny day like today and I look up and there's these big puffy clouds in the sky. And I must have been inspired by a Sunday school lesson or something. So I look up in the sky and and I say to God, God, if, if you're really real, Turn that cloud into a bunny. (laughs) This was serious theology stuff right here. 
Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Cloud stayed the cloud. And I pedaled off on my bike, but I still believed in God. The thing is, friends, sometimes we want these spectacular things to happen that we might believe. And I know people who go from some kind of sensation to another sensation to another sensation because they think somehow that's where their faith comes from. But here is something we've got to hear, that you don't put your faith in a powerful sign. You put your faith in a personal Savior. And I know there's a lot of folks who are into signs and wonders, and I know God still moves in that way. But friends, if that's what you build your faith on, then we are foolish people because we're not seeing beyond the signs to the Savior. Let me put it this way. Let's say you're traveling down to Southern California to take your kids to Disneyland. So all the way, they're seeing the signs to Disneyland. You get onto the main drive, whatever that is, Arbor Boulevard or whatever it is, and, and here's the big entrance sign to Disneyland, this big sign. And so you park the car right by that sign, and you all get out. You say, kids, go play on the sign. And so they dance around the sign. They climb up and down the sign. And then when they're all done, you go, okay, let's get back in the car. Wasn't Disneyland fun? Some of you are going, man, if that could work, that would save me some serious money. (laughs) That wouldn't work, would it? The sign just points to the attraction. It's not the end. And how foolish of us as Christians to demand these signs. God, if you're real, then do this. Do this in my life. And we're asking to play around the sign. And he's saying, oh, I've got so much more for you. i got a relationship with you. You want to hang on the sign, play around, fine. But I've got so much more if you would see beyond the sign. The Pharisees weren't willing to do that. But it goes on, Mark 8, 14, as we wrap it up today. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. So they're walking, they leave the bread in the boat, and they're walking, talking to Jesus. So be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> They're just like, what's he saying? Yeast, Pharisees, yeah. It's because we forgot to bring bread. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And, and don't you remember? These are like, these are rhetorical questions. They don't. They don't, and they don't. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of pieces did I pick up? Or did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? And some of you are going, I don't know if I understand. What's he trying to get to here? All right, remember, we're going to see beyond the signs. Up to this point, Mark has recorded over his account so far how people have rejected Jesus. The Pharisees have. His own family has. And now we see, again, the disciples just not quite getting it. I mean, they have front row seats to everything Jesus has done, and they're still not getting it. They were with him in the boat when he spoke for the sea to calm, and it did, and they're like, who is this guy, right? They never quite understand it, and they have this sense of hardened hearts. Now, before we give the disciples a hard time, let's just take a time out here for a minute and give some explanation, all right? 
they will get it. The Holy Spirit has not yet come into their lives. Praise God for us that when we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit come and take residence in us. And we begin to have that, well, the Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of of Jesus and to bring us into truth. And that happens when we read the Bible and we listen to sound biblical preaching. And God uses that by the Holy Spirit to help us to grow. They didn't have that advantage. They had Jesus out here, but nothing in here. These were men who only approached Jesus cognitively. And they're like, oh, I don't understand this guy. I mean, they just keep seeing him, and they don't get it. They will. And we'll see them in the book of Acts totally get it. And they'll preach Jesus, and masses will get saved. But here we are on this side of the story, and we have the Holy Spirit in us. And we still don't get it. Why? He begins to talk about the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. So why is he talking about yeast now? How many of you know what yeast is? Not the infection, but the, 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 the other stuff. Right? All right, so I grew up in a home where mom made homemade bread. I know, feel guilty for me. It's just terrible. Homemade bread, and we'd watch it sit by the fireplace, and what? The dough would rise, and then we'd have fresh bread. And I'd whine and complain because I couldn't have Wonder Bread. Like, who wants that when you have homemade bread at home? But my friends had wonder bread for lunch, and I didn't. I had these homemade little, anyway, that's my, it's a whole different story. We look at yeast and go, man, that's awesome. It does cool stuff to bread. I mean, leaven makes bread heaven, right? I mean, that's just truth. But in the biblical times, leaven had a different intention around it. In fact, it was often used to speak about evil. In fact, there was a ceremony or, or a week called the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread where the Jewish people had to get all leaven out of their homes, all yeast out of their homes, and they had to only eat unleavened bread, which would be a flat bread like you saw in the videos. Okay? That's what they would eat because leaven was a sign of evil. Now, you can still go eat your bread and be fine with it. If you can have gluten. But that wasn't the point. The point here was there was an aspect of leaven used to communicate evil, and here's possibly why. They didn't have these nice little packets of yeast that we have today. What they would do is they would take a lump of the old bread, and they would put that bread into some juice or some kind of fermentation process that would sit out, and it would get fermented. And in that process, there was high possibility that would not only become fermented, but it would also become bacteria-ridden and gross. But they would take that then as leaven and put it into the new dough and knead it in, and then it would expand and do what fermented stuff does in bread. But what the possibility was, was for that tainted yeast to then infect the whole loaf. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, the Pharisees, who are all about the law, There is something about them you have to be aware of because they're unbelieving. They're not seeing it. Herod, he was all about sensuality, pleasure, living for himself. The whole point, Jesus said, is watch out for the yeast. What is that yeast? That yeast is any evil that we allow to go unattended in our hearts. In fact, here's how we could take this home for us today, and it's this. A small amount of evil left unattended in your life can poison your faith. 
So Jesus sees the disciples having a hard time getting all that. He did miracles. He fed multitudes, and they have hardened hearts, he says. You have eyes but can't see. You have ears but you can't hear. They're dealing with a measure of unbelief. Now, later, that will be corrected. But right now, they're wrestling with unbelief. And unbelief, friends, that little bit of evil we allow into our life, unguarded, can poison your faith. And you know people today who have walked away from the Christian faith because they've been poisoned. Now, I believe doubt is real, and many of you have doubts. And my, my challenge to you is express those doubts. Bring them out. Talk about it. Don't leave them unattended because that little bit will poison your faith. Or some of you are dabbling around with evil, and you think, it's just a little thing. No, listen to me. That little thing can poison your faith. And that's what Jesus was getting to. The disciples should have seen it. They should have known they had an unbelieving heart. Now, we'll see in a couple of verses that will get corrected, at least for one of them. He'll have an aha moment. But how many of us are allowing evil into our lives, maybe through doubt, disbelief, unbelief, or just outright sin, come into our lives, a little bit of it. Jesus says, beware, it'll poison your faith. So these signs that we saw Jesus do, the healing of the man, the feeding of the multitudes, there are things we need to see beyond those signs. I'm glad Jesus did things that got folks' attention, but remember, he didn't come just to get your attention. He came to be your savior, right? That's the point. So behind all these signs, the truth is Jesus is somebody to believe in and to behold. And we need to be people who are willing to see beyond that and see a Savior who wants to have a relationship with you. That is the good news about Mark's gospel. And the signs of Jesus, yes, they would impress us, but may they move us closer to confess our need of that kind of Savior in our life. Let's pray. Lord, as we've taken this time to see these points in your life, when you did incredible things, and yet it had to be frustrating to see how the Pharisees responded because they're hardened hearts, but even more so how your disciples who were close to you responded when they just didn't get it. But Lord, we can look in our own lives, and see how easy it is to become that way. We go through something hard, and it calls into question who we think you are. Or fear creeps into our life, and it causes us to question who you are. And that little bit of thing can grow and poison our faith. So I pray that you would just help us to take a look inside our own hearts like the disciples need to do and will do to recognize how we can also fail to see who you really are in our own lives. So may we never be people who just want signs and move from sensation to sensation because we don't build our faith on those powerful signs. Instead, we build it on that personal relationship with you. And thank you that that's what you still do today. You pulled that one man aside to minister to him. And I pray for anybody in this room this morning right now that you are wanting to minister to personally. Maybe they're here and they feel like that their life is too much of a mess and God, that you don't love them. But I pray right now they would know that you do, you love them, you are for them, and you desire for them to experience the life you've come to give. And I pray they would see beyond all of this to the Savior who waits for them and says, if you would simply come to me and believe who I am, 
then your sins would be forgiven and you would have life abundant. And how we need that, Jesus. For anybody in the room that's in that place, God, I pray right now, you would just touch their hearts. And I pray they'd look to you and say, you're the Savior I need, Jesus. And I want to know more about following you. I pray that would be something that would propel them to act today, not walk away and continue to wrestle with their doubts, but act upon that faith in their hearts this morning. May we all do that into this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.